Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with two particle physicists about the multitude of exotic hadrons that have been discovered at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and why this bounty has led to a rethink in how such particles are named. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by GNBKL Group, a world-class manufacturer of vacuum hardware, including chambers, valves, and components. Make sure you watch their online game show, Will It Bloat?, where they place everyday objects, such as a hot dog, a chocolate Easter bunny, and even an air cylinder into a vacuum chamber to see if they bloat. You can watch America's favorite vacuum show at www.vacuumchamber.com. The LHCB experiment on the Large Hadron Collider at CERN has gone from one success to another in the past 13 years that it's been running. Recently, the LHCB collaboration announced the discovery of three more exotic hadrons, bringing the total to 14 that have been found by the experiment. This has prompted the collaboration to devise a new way of classifying exotic hadrons in a bid to better understand the physics that underlies their existence. To talk about these recent developments at LHCB, I'm joined down the line by collaboration members Elisabetta Spadaro Norello, who is at Italy's INFN in Milan and the University of Milan. And I'm also joined by Tim Gershon at the UK's University of Warwick. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. So, Elisabetta, first things first, what is an exotic hadron? An exotic hadron is a particle composed by a non-standard number of quarks. Quarks, uh, as you might know, are elementary particles and come in six flavors, up, down, charm, strange, top, and bottom. They usually combine together in groups of twos and threes to form a hadrons, while exotic states are made up by four and five quarks, and are called tetraquarks and pentaquarks, respectively. So uh, these states, these exotic states, have been originally predicted in the quark model made by Gallman and Zweig in the 1964, but they have only been observed very recently, in the last 20 years, by LACB and other experiments. So most of the exotic hadrons discovered in the past two decades are states uh, containing a charm quark and a charm anti-quark, with uh, other remaining quarks being an up, down, or strange. And why is it so interesting to study this type of hadrons? Uh, because uh, we, um, we want to understand better how quarks are bound together and how the fundamental strong force works. Uh, therefore, we need to study hadrons because quarks are not seen alone, but they can only be seen confined inside of hadrons. 
So in addition, since uh, the strong um, force theory called quantum chromodynamics doesn't work at, at distance scales characteristic of observable hadrons, there have been a lot of theoretical models that have been put forward to describe how these states, exotic states, um, are composed and how quarks are bound together inside of these states. So for this interpretation, the quarks could be bound by color forces in the so-called compact models, like what happens inside the neutron and the proton, for instance. Or uh, they could also be bound uh, like in the molecular picture. So like molecules of conventional hadrons bound together by loose forces. A notable example is the deuteron, where a neutron and a proton are bound by a pion exchange. So in conclusion, the nature of this exotic state is still under debate. And we need for further evidences of these states in different decay and production channels to help discriminate among those theoretical models. And just recently, Elisabetta, uh, LHCB has, uh, has added to um, our knowledge of, of, of exotic hadrons. Uh, you and your colleagues have discovered three new ones. Can, can you describe these, these new um, exotic hadrons that you've spotted? Yes, of course. One week ago, LSB announced the discovery of these three new exotic hydrons, one pentaquark and two tetraquarks. I've been directly involved in the force analysis, which leads to the observation of a new pentaquark state. So I will mainly talk about this one. Uh, the pentaquark is observed in an analysis of a charged B-meson decays. Uh, this type of decays offer a very good opportunity to search for narrow resonances because we are able to reconstruct the mass of a B meson with a very high resolution. Actually, all results presented today are observed in B meson decays, and this is somehow in common and a very intriguing feature uh, of these uh, new exotic hadrons that have been observed. And is that, is that what B stands for in LHCB? The B meson is uh, um, an hadron uh, composed by um, the bottom quark and uh, plus, plus another quark. Uh, we collect lots of uh, uh, this type of uh, decays because our experiment is designed to search for um, mesons or baryons containing heavy uh, quarks. So, so Elisabetta, can you, can you describe this pentaquark for us? What, what does it look like if we could see inside it? Yeah, this pentaquark uh, is the second pentaquark seen by LACB with a very high significance, uh, uh, larger than five standard deviations. So we claim an observation when we got at this threshold, above this threshold. So this is uh, um, a state composed by um, a charm quark, a charmante quark, and an up, down, and strange quark. The peculiarity of this discovery is that this is the first pentaquark with strange quark content observed. 
The presence of a strange quark is exciting because we confirm that the flavor symmetry for which hadrons, conventional hadrons, with up, down, and strange quarks are classified in patterns for the standard model, can also hold for the exotic sector. So um, we hope to see more exotic states uh, that can form multiplets uh, of states such, um, such what hap- uh, like what happens in the conventional uh, sector. And what about the two tetraquarks? Can you, can you give, give us a feel about what they look like? Yes, they are. Uh, the first tetraquark is a doubly electrically charged tetraquark. And it is always composed by a charm, only a charm a quark, um, a strange antiquark, and an up and down antiquark. It was spotted together with its neutral counterpart in an analysis of positively charged and neutral bimeson decays. These tetraquarks are the first pair of tetraquarks that have been observed. Uh, so we wonder if they can be flavor partner and which is the theoretical interpretation of these states. Are they compact states or molecular ones? Maybe I can just add something there because yeah. I, I know that uh, sometimes it's difficult to, to understand what's new when there are so many new particles being discovered. But the, the observation of this tetraquark with uh, two units of electric charge is really a striking discovery that's completely new. So within the conventional quark model, it is possible to have baryon states, which have two units of electric charge, and indeed several of those have been discovered in the past, but it is impossible to have a meson, uh, which is a a state which does not have baryon number or conventionally is a a quark-antiquark pair that cannot have two units of electric charge. So the fact we see this state with two units of electric charge but no baryons involved is a really striking discovery and shows us that there's something new going on in how the quarks are being bound together to form hadrons, which makes another piece of the puzzle which hopefully can understand uh, some of the uh, main challenges in this area that Elisabetta was describing earlier. And so, Tim, you're, you're getting a growing amount of information about these exotic hadrons. And I think that's, that's, um, that's prompted LHCB to, to create a new naming convention. Well, why is it necessary to, um, to come up with a different way of naming these particles? Yes, that's right, Hamish. So as Elizabeth said, from the, the start of the, the quark model, way back in, in 1964, it was actually anticipated that it could be possible to have states like tetraquarks and pentaquarks. But as no such states were, were discovered in the uh, 40 years following that, uh, it, it, uh, they, they were not considered so seriously. And the, the naming scheme that exists for conventional mesons and baryons doesn't make any allowance for what uh, these particles should be should be called. So maybe just to, to clarify, by naming scheme, I don't mean the names tetraquark and pentaquark. What, what we mean are the symbols that we assign. So an example is a particle called the pion, which is a conventional meson. We use the Greek letter pi as a, as a symbol for it. 
And when uh, new particles were first discovered, the first new uh, tetraquarks were discovered, because there was no symbol for them, they were uh, denoted by X. X simply means we don't know what to call this. So the first ones were called X, but then as more were discovered and they were found to be a bit different from the X particles, they were called Z. And then more recently, we've also had tetraquarks labeled P. And in addition, a range of uh, subscripts are added to these to help to indicate how they're different, but the subscripts are assigned in a inconsistent way. In particular, as Elisabetta mentioned, the first states that were discovered contained both charm and anti-charm quarks, and a subscript C was added to the symbol to indicate that uh, they contained both charm and anti-charm. But more recently, states have been discovered that include also a strange quark. And here I mean a single strange quark, not strange and anti-strange. So those ones, we've added an extra subscript S, both in tetraquarks and now with the new discovery of the pentaquark, uh, which contains strangeness, which Elisabetta described a few moments ago. So... Uh, we have now, in, on top of all of that, discovered uh, tetraquarks, such as the ones in the new discoveries, which contain charm. And by that, I mean not charm and anti-charm, but just a charm quark. So we can't assign a subscript C for those because we've already used the C label to mean charm and anti-charm. So we don't really know what label to use, and things are starting to become a bit of a confusing mess. So we thought that it was time to try to bring some kind of um, logic to, to the naming scheme. And uh, we have done this over uh, quite an extensive period involving discussions not only within the LHEB collaboration, but also involving other experiments that are active in this field and the theorists that are involved uh, in, in this topic. And uh, the proposal that we've come has some simplicity at its core in that uh, we have decided that all tetraquarks should have a label T and all pentaquarks should have a label P. So that, I hope, is easy for everyone to remember. But of course, that doesn't give you all the information you need to distinguish these different particles. So then we've set out uh, some rules for assigning subscripts and superscripts. And in particular, these rules solve the problem I was just talking about, where we need to distinguish between the case where there is both charm and anti-charm included in the particle, or if there is just a charm without the anti-charm partner. And so is the idea here, um, you know, somebody new to the field, a student, for example, can get up to speed very quickly with, with all the particles? Or is there something beyond that in the sense that if, if, you, org if you organize these particles in a, in a more logical way, it, it just helps you think about them and see patterns that maybe would have been missed before in the data um, because the particles had sort of ar arbitrary names? Yes, so I think the, there is a, a, a number of possible benefits, and we will see in, in time um, exactly how those are realized. So both points that you mention are important. But I would emphasize that the, the naming scheme is a kind of a language that we 
used to communicate between uh, different people working in, in the field. And it's important that that language is understandable by, by non-experts so they can also understand what's going on. So there should be some simplicity to it. But it's also important that it allows for the, the detailed conversations between experts. And I, I feel that it was almost like um, with the, the number of different symbols that were in use, that we had almost a, a Tower of Babel type situation uh, although after the fall of the, the Tower of Babel, where um, where everyone was speaking a different language and it was difficult to communicate, what we've maybe tried to do here is is reconstruct that tower and have a unified scheme so that everyone can speak the same language and everyone can communicate together about their latest results. And by doing so, that will help the field to progress more more rapidly. So that is the the hope, and uh, we will have to see. Uh, how well that works in reality, um, but I, I am sure that there will all you know be benefits for newcomers to the field to be able to refer to a, a single document where we've really specified um, what the conventions are in this new naming scheme. We've tried to think through all of the possibilities and make sure that they're all covered, and people can use that document as a kind of dictionary for the for the new language to to look up uh, what the different symbols mean. And Tim, you mentioned a progression. The, the Large Hadron Collider has just fired up for its latest experimental run. And um, I, I understand that, that you and your colleagues have made quite a few improvements to the LHCB experiment during the, the, the last shutdown. What, um, what are some of the new capabilities of the experiment? Indeed. So we're very excited about the, the forthcoming run of the Large Hadron Collider, um, which is exciting for all of the experiments, but in particular for LHCB, as we have an upgraded detector installed. Um, upgraded almost undersells the, the changes that have been made. In fact, it is in many respects a completely new detector. Uh, almost all aspects of the detector are changed to uh, the one which was running so successfully in the first couple of years. And these changes were necessary to allow us to record data at a faster rate, essentially recording more collisions from the Large Hadron Collider. So there are a number of really important uh, changes, and I won't have time to go into all of those, uh, but I would just emphasize two. Uh, the first is in the part of LHCB which is closest to where the proton-proton interactions occur in the Large Hadron Collider, which we call the Vertex Locator, or VELO for short. So uh, in the new upgraded VELO, we use silicon pixel detectors, which allows us to have finer granularity and better measurements of the trajectories of charged particles as they emerge from the interactions. And we can measure them even closer to the interaction point as, as than we were previously able to do. So this will allow us to get better resolution on the positions uh, and the trajectories of understanding where in space these particles originate from. And that is crucial for us to be able to separate our signal processes that we are looking for, uh, be it the decay of B hadrons, which might produce uh, tetraquarks and pentaquarks, 
or whether it is rare B decays which allow us to search for physics beyond the standard model, or whether it is other types of, of processes where we're looking for asymmetries between matter and, and antimatter. So this will give us big benefits across all of our physics program. The other main change to LHCB that I'd like to mention is a change to the way in which the data are read out from the, the detector uh, through what we conventionally call a trigger system, which means how we decide which events are the most interesting ones. And therefore, when we see a signal in the detector that we think is interesting, we fire this trigger and the data are recorded and available for analysis later. And for the remainder, of course, if the trigger is not fired, uh, the, that data is not stored and, and is lost. Uh, we have really changed the philosophy of how triggering is done in experiments um, at Hadron Colliders at, in LHEB with uh, a new paradigm that we call real-time analysis. And the idea here is that the trigger doesn't just look at some subset of what of the data that's available in the detector in order to make a very crude decision on whether the event is interesting or not, uh, but reconstructs everything that is, is possible, tries to do essentially the same type of analysis that you would do offline, but do all of that in the trigger. And by doing so, we can decide not only do we want to record this event or not, but sometimes we can decide, well, there are certain parts of the event that we want to record, but we don't want to record the rest. And this is a massive benefit for us because we are limited in the amount of data that we can write out. Indeed, if we were to write out everything, we would uh, fill up our storage capacity uh, in no time at all, uh, which would be very limiting. So we want to make sure we make the best use of the storage capability uh, that we have, that the data that we record is the most interesting um, and the, the most interesting bits of events, not only the most interesting event. So by making this, this change and introducing this real-time analysis uh, paradigm, it really changes the way that we can do physics and allows us to get uh, much more data than we were previously. So the combination of the factors of having better efficiency through real-time analysis and having higher luminosity, higher rates of collisions from the Large Hadron Collider, this will give us about an order of magnitude more data to analyze by the end of run three compared to what we have now. And, and so, Elisabetta, it sounds like um, you're going to be analyzing some amazing data very soon. What, what are you looking forward to um, in terms of this run of the LHC? Yeah, we are looking forward to new evidences in the exotic sector, since today we are talking about exotic states, we might be able to measure the property of the states observed so far with higher precision, uh, like the quantum numbers that are not assigned for all these states. Quantum numbers are the quantum properties of the states, like the spin and the parity. But we could also be uh, able to see new states in different production and decay channels. And... Um, also to observed partners of the, the observed states, as mentioned in the introduction. 
So on the other end, we could also be able to see partners of already observed states, uh, like said in the introduction, or even observe the new states with different core content, like the beauty quark. And what about you, Tim? What are you looking forward to? Yes, I think this is a very personal question. And probably if you asked every member of the LHCB collaboration, you'd get a, a slightly different answer. Um, but I think there are a few uh, things that we can hope to see. And of course, the joy of research is that we don't really know what we will see. But let me mention two that I think would be extremely exciting if we can see them. So the, the first is that all of the exotic hadrons that we have discovered to date decay by the strong interaction. And uh, in particle physics, because as the strong interaction, as the name implies, it is strong. So every time a particle can decay by the strong interaction, it will. But it is possible that there are some tetraquarks and pentaquarks where the quarks are bound together so tightly that it is not possible for them to decay by the strong interaction. And they may only be able to decay either through the electromagnetic interaction, or if they are so tightly bound that even the electromagnetic interaction is impossible, it may be that they decay only through the weak interaction. And because the, the weak interaction is, again, as the name implies, so much weaker, that would lead to these particles having much longer lifetimes, that they would exist for much longer before they decay into the particles that we eventually observe in the detector. To, to see a weakly decaying uh, tetraquark, or indeed pentaquark, uh, as is predicted in some theoretical models, would be an extremely exciting discovery and would allow us to get real additional insights into the, the binding mechanisms of, of those particles. Essentially, the fact that they live longer allows you to study them uh, in, in more detail and, and get extra information that you cannot otherwise. So that's one that, that would be extremely exciting. Um, the other thing I would mention, and indeed some listeners may be wondering, if you have states composed of four or five quarks in addition to the conventional two or three, why stop there? Why not six? And that is a very good question indeed. Why not, why not six? So maybe it could be possible to see a state which is composed of six quarks, uh, which in the literature is sometimes called a hexaquark, uh, but also sometimes called a dibaryon. And uh, such states, in fact, do exist in nuclear physics. Uh, the deuteron, which was mentioned by Elizabeth earlier, is an example of one. Uh, but if we were to see similar states uh, composed of heavy quarks, or at least including heavy quarks in them, that again would be another really major breakthrough. So we don't know what we will discover, and but maybe it will be uh, one of those things. Uh, maybe it will be something even more exciting that we haven't even thought about yet. Well, that's great. It sounds like uh, we're going to be seeing many more exciting discoveries at LHCB over the next uh, few years. Thanks, uh, Elisabetta and Tim, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
Elisabetta, Tim, and their LHCB colleagues describe the new naming convention for exotic hadrons in a preprint that's available on the archive server. Just look for the title Exotic Hadron Naming Convention. I'll put a link to the preprint in the podcast notes. There's a lot more about particle physics on the Physics World website this month, including a profile of Liam Merminga, who has just become the seventh director of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in the U.S., which is also known as Fermilab. Prior to the Large Hadron Collider, Fermilab was home to the world's preeminent particle collider, the Tevatron, which operated from 1983 to 2011. Since then, Fermilab has shifted much of its focus to neutrino experiments and the development of accelerator technologies to create intense proton beams. Merminga spoke to Physics World Laura Hiscott about her career as an accelerator physicist, which began with a stint working on Tevatron as a PhD student. She talks about her time as leader of Fermilab's Proton Improvement Plan 2, which aims to deliver intense beams of protons to neutrino and other experiments. Merminga also explains how she's working with Fermilab personnel to formulate a new vision of the future of this world-famous lab. You can find the profile on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Leah Merminga, Directing the Future of Fermilab. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the discovery of the Higgs boson, an event that I remember well because I had the immense privilege of being at CERN when the announcement was made. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, host Andrew Glester speaks with the particle physicist Christina Botta and with Achintia Rao, who is communications officer on CERN's CMS experiment. They talk about their recollections of the discovery of the Higgs boson. You can find the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by GNBKL. Do check out their video series, Will It Bloat, at www.vacuumchamber.com forward slash videos. Thanks to Elisabetta Spadaro Norella and Tim Gershon for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. Physics World.